Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as 249 Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you. What one word do you think you make art about that represents you? Oh, blimey. What a way to start, Steve. Thanks a lot. <laughs> two words. Can I have two? Yep. But I, I would say pop culture. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. When you were being brought up in, in New Brighton, which I've been to because of the Colin Vernon black video, Beautiful Life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's the only reason why I knew it, because uh, he filmed that video there. And I actually, after the video was made, I went there and interviewed him at the particular places. A very desolate place in when I was there, where it was cold, it was windy, uh, very beautiful, very desolate, sort of art deco is what I remember. Uh, is that right? It changed a lot since I lived there. I mean, I was brought up there in the 60s and the 70s, and it was a big fairground um, place. There were a lot lot of massive fairgrounds. There was a pier. Uh, so it was very, it was actually, I, I'd said this recently to somebody, it was a very that'll be the day type of uh, environment because my summer holiday jobs from school we're always in the working in the arcades or on the pier selling buckets and spades and things like that. It, the whole town was left to kind of die in the 80s. 
and everything went, the pier was demolished, all the fairgrounds went, and it's become basically, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful coastal town now, but it's basically, um, it's basically residential these days. Uh, there's a guy there, Daniel Davis, who is a local guy who, who is a big street art um, enthusiast. And he, ha he has basically single-handedly taken on the main uh, road there, Victoria Road, bought up a lot of the properties and is actually funding it himself and doing them up and has brought in street artists from all over the world. Uh, to, to to kind of regenerate the town. So it's on the way up again. But yeah, it was very desolate in the 80s and 90s. Um, so I can understand what you're saying. But when you were there, um, obviously you were a young child, you were living with your parents. Were you in any sort of creative family or were you like most people uh, in Britain, myself included, in a family where creativity was really something that you really shouldn't be involved in or do i had a very unusual and very unstable childhood because uh my mother was divorced and she had me um outside after she was divorced with somebody else who she wasn't in a relationship with she was um like a career woman um so we traveled around all over the country i first went to school in edinburgh then manchester then all over the place then when i was eight she died and I went back to live with my aunt and uncle in New Brighton, who, who, because uh, I was originally from New Brighton, um, and I went back to live with them. Uh, so it was kind of a very, it was a very unusual childhood, and because I'd moved around such a lot, um, I didn't really have any friends because I, I was never in one place long enough to really make uh, long, long-term friends. So. To amuse myself, I would sort of draw. It was always the thing that I could do. Um, and I just really carried on. It was it, it was just, uh, it, it was something you could do on your own. You didn't need to be with people. Um, and it was the only thing really, I was terrible at school academically. Uh, so um, that's kind of how I started. I mean, my mother was artistic. She'd been an, an amateur actress and she she was a, a dressmaker and um, she could do tailoring and she could she could she was very artistic. So I think I inherited my uh, um, ability for art for, from my mother. But generally speaking, um, it was just something that I did, you know, that I found I was good at and enjoyed. I mean, often when I've uh, talked to artists, and I mean that in the wider context um they've there is some wound in the childhood which yeah. has provided their drive in their life and the trigger to that drive in their life is that what you feel the death of your mother at a very young age was for you i suspect it was i mean it totally changes you something like that you know i mean the weird thing about my mother was she was always either working uh, she was kind of what you would now call a PR, PR lady. So she was always working for different companies, doing PR stuff. And she was always in and out of hospitals. So she was kind of a very remote figure for me. Um, so I have this kind of strange, remote idea of her as this kind of person who I could never quite get close to. And I think these things do, yeah, they do completely... Um, 
they do have a real profound influence on you and your drive to kind of, I think somebody did say to me that they felt that what, what I, cause it's very difficult to analyze your own work, but other people uh, kind of um, seem to be able to read into things that you hadn't realized. And somebody said to me, what you, what I'm doing with my work is creating a kind of idealized world that I didn't really have. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think you're right. I think it does. And I think that situation and then being moved around a lot. and I mean, I went to 12 different schools, you know, uh, during my childhood, including art school, but 12 different schools. So it was very, a very I was very alienated and very kind of solitary uh, person, which I still am, actually. You know, I'm still... Pretty, pretty, pretty sort of solitary and reclusive in a way. Do you think that's made you an observer to some extent? Because almost like you being detached yeah. at a young age makes you sort of observe things rather than be involved in things. So is that part of where your um, interest in art has come from? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, totally, completely. I've always been an observer. And over the years, I've I've gravitated towards things like the club scene and the music scene, which are fed into my art as subjects and and, uh, and, and all of that sort of thing. And um, in within those scenes, I've always been an observer. And I'm absolutely fascinated with people, with faces, with, with and especially with um, the kind of self-created personas that people within the club world or the music world um, build around themselves to as as a kind of um, a lot of the people that I've known, like from pop stars to club people, they're actually quite insecure and they build this persona around themselves to operate under. And I've been fascinated with that um, as an observer, always completely. That's really fascinating. I want to come back to that because I actually <laughs> wrote a book about the wounds of pop stars childhood and how the mask plays a role in in them and their success so I'll come back to that but I just want to know yeah. you, you talked about the image of people and, and how they present themselves to the world when was the first time that you can remember um, an encounter that really gave you this fascination for that type of image Ziggy Stardust in 1972 I was working on the pier in New Brighton, selling um, buckets and spades and rock. And uh, it was it was the early summer of 1972. I clearly remember this day, it was incredible. And before we got busy, I ran over to the tea stall to get a cup of tea. And there were two teddy boys that worked on the fair. As I said, it was very, that'll be the day back then. You still had teddy boys kind of working on, in the fairs. And these two teddy boys were waiting for coffee. And one of them was telling his mate about this outrageous gig he'd just been to at the Liverpool Stadium, um, where the singer was apparently half man, half woman, and wore makeup and spacesuits on stage. And I, I was, because I was just realizing that I was gay and everything, and I was into pop music. And I, I so I was really eavesdropping. I thought, wow, this sounds incredible you know and it was very sexy because they were very sexy looking teddy boys as well so i kind of thought what's going on here and i i eavesdropped long enough to hear the name david bowie 
Now, I'd heard Starman on the radio, but I didn't know anything about who the singer was. I'd never seen seen him or, or whatever, but I was mad about UFOs and space and all of that sort of stuff. So on my lunch break, I ran out to the local news agent and bought um, a couple of the pop magazines, which at that time were full of kind of Ziggy Star, especially the girl, girl sort of pop magazines. And uh, I just thought, this is the most incredible person I've ever seen. You know, uh, absolutely amazing, incredible clothes, beautiful face, bright red hair, uh, you know, just like this. I'd never seen anything like it. And on top of that, uh, apparently gay, because I think it was around the time he said he was gay. And I just thought, this is somebody I can absolutely, I just bought into the whole thing. I felt like I was Ziggy Stardust, you know, an alien, this alienated person, this gay person and all of that. And um, because, I mean, really growing up, in the north of England back in the early 70s, I mean, it wasn't like it is today. When you realised you were gay, it was a massive problem to you. It was not something you, and there was no, there were no um, role models. You know, the, the gay people you saw on TV were very camp people like John Inman and Larry Grayson, who of course now I adore, but back then you didn't want to be like these people. Um, and then along came David Bowie and, that was it. I just bought into the whole thing. And ever since that, I would listen, read his interviews, and he would name check artists and filmmakers and um, painters. Uh, Andy Warhol, I first heard about through David Bowie, uh, the uh, Velvet Underground, Iggy Pop, um, Jean Genet, all these things, you know, that I wasn't learning, I didn't learn anything at school really. And um, I've known uh, Boy George for, for many years since the Blitz and, uh, you know, we worked together and I painted him. And we, we talk often about David Bowie and we both said we learned nothing at school. David Bowie was our education and led us on to it. So, yeah, to, to answer your question, um, you know, Ziggy Stardust. I think what's fascinating so, is, I mean, I was 10 at the moon landing. I don't know what your what your birth year is. What is it? 57. So I was in 72 when I was uh, discovered Ziggy Stardust. I was 14. Yeah, and I was, yeah, I was 13. And for me, Bowie represented, similarly, he represented a world which would be the escape from my parents where I thought I could belong. And it was the most important moment of my life. And I think what you say about Boy George and what you say about all gay men of our generation certainly had that moment in 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 their life now bowie was a different type of um rock star um as oh. well because of what you said because he combined so many different art forms in his work when yeah. for me originally and this is you know i'm a 13 year old for me it was about i wanted to go and get a david bowie haircut and i remember that people called me linda mccartney cuz i look more like <laughs> David Bowie, sadly. Right. It was difficult to get it right. <laughs> yeah. But the the late it was later that all these artistic elements, and in a sense, and I've talked to um another uh, a great journalist called Larry Flick recently, and he said about Bowie, what was really fascinated uh, fascinating about him was um that a lot of 
the gay world of where he was from in New York was quite superficial. And mm. it was about how you looked and presented yourself, but it wasn't about the deeper cultural aspect which Bowie was about. So when did you discover that? It was quite superficial for me initially. I was attracted by the by the image and I loved the music and the costumes and everything. Uh, and I think as it went on, I think really by the, I think when he kind of started to ditch the glamour aspect and went into the, the Diamond Dogs kind of period, um, I think that's when I started to really kind of look into it a lot more deeply. But the interesting thing, coming back to the 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 at school um, that I was at when uh, Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane came out, I'd always been slightly bullied because I was always the new kid in school, and I never had the local accent because I'd moved around so much. So the kids would bully you for being they thought you were posh, which I certainly wasn't, and of course. Kids could sense that you were gay before you even knew it yourself. So you'd get bullied. I was getting bullied, or, or not badly, but just basically kind of felt under threat all the time as like this weird new kid in the class who was posh and was gay and whatever. And then when Bowie came out and said he was gay, suddenly all the, all the sort of tough lads at school that wanted to kill you, they didn't want to kill you anymore. Because they thought you were, and because I, I had the Ziggy Stardust haircut and everything, suddenly I was seen as this cool person. They might still want to beat you up, but they actually didn't want to physically kill you anymore. And I remember it really hit sort of the next following year when Aladdin Sane came out, and all of these boys would turn up at school with one earring in the left ear. It had to be the left ear because if it was in the right ear, it meant you were gay. Yeah, yeah. And all carrying copies of Aladdin Sane under their arms, whatever. And uh, it was like a complete turnaround and never looked back on any. Incredible. Can you remember the moment you decided to leave Merseyside and come to London? I think it was just a gradual dawning that, you know, all my, uh, all my cousins and my relatives and everyone that I love dearly, but they all have very different lives because they're all very straight and married, get married. It's all about getting married, having kids. And back in the late 70s, uh, live, that whole area was very deprived. And there were, there were really no opportunities. If you, wanted to, if you wanted to do something in the arts, you, firstly, you weren't encouraged because the schools really wanted to turn out people to work in factories or offices. So you were completely not encouraged to do anything artistic. Liverpool was kind of... Seem, even Liverpool seemed like a mythland to me because it was very hard to get. You couldn't really go out in Liverpool at night because I had, didn't really have much money. You could never get back over the river at night or anything. So um, I kind of, when I was getting towards the end of art school, I, decided, I just really had this hankering to be where it was happening. And it wasn't happening really. You had to really go to London. And... Uh, so I just decided to, I was at, I did part, uh, during one of my photography courses, David Balfe from the Teardrops, uh, we became friends because we were doing this photography thing together. And him and I decided to go and see David Bowie in 78 at Earl's Court. Uh, we got tickets. David didn't turn up for the National Express coach because he, I think he was on acid trip or something. And so I, I came to London on my own in 78. And my first day in London was seeing David Bowie at Earl's Court. 
And it was absolutely amazing. I just thought, right, I'm staying in, I'm going to stay in London. So uh, a friend of mine lived in, uh, a cousin of mine lived in Luton. So I sort of went and stayed with him for a while. I walked around Soho uh, with my portfolio, called in at a couple of um, design companies. The first two said, we're not taking anybody on. The third one in, Be in Beak Street, Soho, um, said, great, when can I start? So within a day, I had a job as a junior illustrator in Soho and came and lived in London. And uh, it was just amazing. My The life that I fantasised about meeting all these amazing people just kind of happened. Um, I ended up meeting all the people from Blitz. I met Anthony Price, who did all the costumes for Roxy Music. I started seeing him. He started taking me around to all these clubs. And... Uh, it was just amazing. It was I, I. I was just kind of thought, wow, you know, this is exactly what I wanted. This is this is how I wanted it to be, and that's how it turned out. What did what was your impression? Because one thing that really struck me about going to a a, a Bowie gig in the seventies was that my impression I was fascinated as much with the audience totally. as with Bowie. I couldn't believe it. You know, coming from New Brighton. I'd never seen kind of outrageous. But I mean, I remember I used to see Pete Burns if I was over in Liverpool um, during the day or something. You'd see Pete Burns walking around, which was traffic stopping. But apart from that, I'd never really seen kind of outrageous people. And at this gig, there were it was transvestites, there were punks, there were you know, it was absolutely amazing. And in fact, the audience were more colourful than Bowie was because he was quite. He was quite toned down by then, um, but the audience were amazing. And most of the people that I went on to meet, including a lot of the people who went on to become pop stars in the 80s, everybody was at one of those concerts. Everybody. It was incredible. If a bomb had dropped on any of those shows, culture in London in the 80s would have been wiped out. You talked about um, Anthony Price and him taking you around and introducing to people yeah. and also about the Blitz, which had Rusty Egan, who would play records, Steve Strange on the door, and Boy George was the Kocek uh, well. guy, as it were. Um, and you said about these people, including Scarlett, who was on the door of Cha-Cha's as well, and uh, Scarlett Cannon, you said that they created characters to function inside a society that they had created for themselves. What does yeah. that mean? Well, coming back to kind of what I said about people who are maybe slightly insecure or quite insecure, creating this um, artificial sort of character around themselves in order to function in, they, and they created a scene, like the whole Blitz scene or Cha-Cha's was very much a kind of self-contained scene. People, it's very, it was very different then because so, as you would know yourself, circles of those so-called people were quite small. There wasn't an awful lot of people. And it was a very kind of tight-knit scene. And those scenes could get quite intense and quite comp very competitive. I mean, the Blitz was those people would kill each other to get an inch of, uh, you know, press in, in the gossip column. You know, it was not, people were not all looking out for each other. And a lot of um, the outrageous kind of characters were a kind of defense shield so they could function inside that sort of situation inside that kind of artificial world that, that they had um, created. Was the mask also a protection 
against the unbelievable homophobia of the 70s and 80s. I don't know whether they were protection because they attracted a lot of uh, homophobia, to be quite honest. Um, it's a kind of strange thing because dressing up like that, you really have to... You know, you have to, I mean, I never really dressed up that much. You know, I I I was kind of more um, into uh, kind of Anthony Price sort of suits and bleached hair, or whatever. I, I you know, I, I never really wore an awful lot of makeup or anything like that. But the people like George and Marilyn and whatever, they you know, they had to have the personality to to deal with. They could kind of deflect homophobes with their with their with their wit. If you know what I mean. So it was, uh, but I think that I did. Were the masks kind of? I don't know. Did they attract homophobia, or did they kind of um, frighten it off? I don't. It's hard to say because luckily I was never, thank God, the victim of. I can honestly say, and I mean, I've walked all over London in the middle of the night on drugs and drunk and whatever through the decades, and touch wood, never had any. Uh, problem at all so I don't know you know you've said that you've been a, an observer you know because um because of your mother's death and then you become a sort of observer of what's going on and in essence I can imagine that you were an observer in blitz because if you weren't part of the central group of I'm going to call them show-offs you know these large and live characters then yeah. you're observing those people so is this where a uh, um a lot of your ideas had their fundament is where they really started. Oh, definitely, yeah. Because when I um, set foot in the Blitz and uh, met people like Steve and Marilyn and George and all, all of those people, they were the most incredible people, you know, visually. And I absolutely realised at that moment that these, this is, these, these are my subjects. This is this is what my art is is about, and so I started painting. I mean, I, George says to this day that I painted his portrait when he was eighteen, before long before he was famous, and he said it made him feel like a star because it was very unusual as an eighteen-year-old working-class kid from Lewisham to have somebody paint the portrait. And um, I did, you know, I painted Steve and I painted Marilyn. Uh, I painted a lot, you know, quite a few of the Blitz people and ended up doing record covers and stuff like that. Purely because I was observing these people, you know. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely. So to answer your question, totally, you're completely right, yeah. How did you end up in an Adam and the Ants video? Well, basically... Um, I had I, a friend of mine was this girl, a very camp girl called Betty Valentino, a beautiful Italian girl who looked like a Italian film star, very very camp, and she worked for Mike Mansfield, the TV uh, producer director. She she was kind of his um, like assistant or whatever. So whenever they were doing a pop video, they wanted a cast of freaks and blitz kids, whatever. So Betty would always get us all involved. So we did, uh, we were in loads of things, Breaking Glass, the movie, both the Adam Ants videos, videos for, I can't even remember some of them, um, other people as well, who, who else? Uh, Dead or Alive, you know, we were, 
they would get because they didn't i think it saved them money because they didn't need to hire costumes or get makeup artists or anything because everybody turned up looking like they normally do which was good enough and outrageous enough for the video i mean the you mentioned earlier jean genet and um he talks about in in his writing or writes about how objects can uh create a reaction there's this famous story about the tub of vaseline and it creating a, a reaction from the guards who beat him up because it represented his homosexuality and dick hebdige who wrote a lot about pop culture says that the same thing about yeah. pop stars that these objects that they're surrounded by their words their music their lyrics um are uh, what really defines their identity and that that is something very important in 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 the pop world and that's why i sort of talked about or mentioned with me this subject of identity because in a way your art is in essence part of you and um your identity so how therapeutic is each what new work that you do to challenging or dealing with any issues that you have about identity and mm. and who you are mm. uh, it's, it's extremely therapeutic i mean i absolutely love what i do i absolutely adore it you know um and the fact that i can make a living from it is 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 you know is just an extra you know it's something i would be i've, I've always done it's very therapeutic and in a way, you're, yeah, it is. I mean, as you say, people say that painters always basically portray themselves. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, most of my work is figurative and it's focused on people with very, very definite, strong images and everything. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's definitely therapeutic. It's something that, I just kind of, I don't know, you, I, I, you're creating an identity on a canvas as well. Uh, and, and as you say, the things you surround yourself with all become part of you. So I guess kind of the art that I create is kind of facets of me in a way. I mean, you're in some of your art, a younger version of you. Why a younger version? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
because they are basically they're based on um i took had took a lot of photographs back in that era and were, I ended up being in a lot of photographs back in that era with a lot of polaroids um and it's i a lot of it was i was actually intending to do an exhibition which was just recreations of which i may still do actually uh, of images from that particular era and a lot of those works were created with that in mind because I find that the younger generation are extremely interested in everything to do with that uh, era with the with the music the um, with the music the looks the makeup the fashion it's been very influential and and I were I still work in I do um, art, still do artworks for uh, the clubbing industry, for defective records, for their glitter box parties and things. And I meet a lot of the younger generation of clubbers and people who are involved in um, the, you know, DJs and production people. And when they hear that you were went to the Blitz and all this sort of thing, they can't believe it. And they want to hear about it. And they're absolutely fascinated if, if, you, if I post pictures from that uh, time on social media, whatever, it gets an amazing reaction. So pictures with me in that I've created, I guess, were are, um, my version of self-portraits, uh, but rather than being a kind of introspective, um, kind of traditional self-portrait, they're based on kind of glamorous images from the time. And I think that's how we like to see ourselves, you know, because we're all, we're all getting a lot older and, uh, you know, you can kind of look back and think, wow, you know, we kind of all looked great back then, you know, and now we're, we're sort of, you know, we. I mean, people used to say, when I first came to London, people used to say, wow, you know, you look like the boy out of death in Venice. And now <laughs> you look at the mirror, you think, I look more like the star of Asenbash these days, you know. So it's just kind of, uh, it's fun to look back on. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Christmas. And what better way to get into the holiday spirit than with a minky couture blanket? Whether you're gathered around the tree with loved ones, roasting marshmallows by the fire, or just looking for a cozy way to stay warm on a chilly night, minky blankets are the perfect addition to your Christmas festivities. With a wide range of festive designs and colors, you can find the perfect blanket to match your holiday decor or gift to your loved ones. So this Christmas, make your holiday even cozier with a Minky Couture blanket. Head to MinkyCouture.com now and find your perfect blanket just in time for the holiday. Happy holidays from Minky Couture. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. When I look at photos of years ago, even with photos when I was uh, working on MTV or photos from that sort of clubland era, um, yeah. I see a sort of unhappy person because I, in in myself, at that period, I was very uncomfortable with, my, with myself and who I was. And I hadn't really, um, it wasn't that I hadn't come to terms with, you know, my sexuality, which I had done, 
Um, it was more like I was just very unhappy during a certain period. So I just wonder when you do actually represent yourself as a younger person on on a in a painting, do you actually see inside that person and what do you see? Mm. Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, I feel exactly the same. I, ne I was never really a very happy person at all. And I think we do a lot of these things to almost as a distraction against our unhappiness, you know. And I mean, I look back at pictures, of the, you know, a lot of the photos of myself and whatever from the time, people, people used to say to me at the time, oh, you're very aloof, whatever. Um, you know, I still meet people who say, oh, we, we met you in so-and-so and we just thought you were really aloof and everything. And it wasn't, it was kind of, I think you were just not very happy. And, um, it, 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 I guess it comes across, but yeah, like you, I was never really that happy, or never really felt that secure. I, I think, I think when you've had like a difficult childhood, you have an inbuilt insecurity about everything, and you never really feel secure or happy. And I never actually thinking about it really have felt secure or completely happy, um, which is what sorry painting because you lose yourself in the creative process and uh, you focus on that and it takes you out of thinking about your own interior landscape is it the search for compensation of the wound that happened in the childhood with you your mother and it's something that you can't compensate it's just something that you have to live with absolutely yeah i think um yeah, I think what we're, I mean, I think what you're doing, when you start to, when you start to get reactions and people, like you being on TV or when people see my art and you get compliments and reactions, I think you are, I think that is part of what you're trying to attract uh, to, as you say, as compensation for, for um, things in your childhood. It's, I think you're looking for approval, you're looking for validation, because um, if you felt kind of alienated and insecure, I think you're always on a search for that that kind of validation and attention. And I think it's the same for um, certainly all of the all of the people that I know that what, that went on to become pop stars, people like David Sylvian, George, um, Steve Strange. I think people all. I think you're right. I think that. There's there's some kind of trauma or flaw that uh, that drives people on definitely. I mean the the you know you mentioned Andy Warhol earlier and the Andy Warhol interview magazine. You know there was a series of covers which were done by Richard Bernstein, mm. um, which you're heavily influenced by. Can you tell me about that influence and what what attracted you to Bernstein's work? Well. As soon as I saw copies of Interview magazine, of course, you know, in 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 because when I came to London, obviously, you know, there, there were a lot of those sort of magazines you could see in the news agents and whatever. So I absolutely loved loved them, and um, I I spent I went to New York quite a few times in the eighties, uh, but um, and was mixing in in with that kind of that it was an incredible place, New York. Uh, the all all these sort of art. The artist at the time, Haring and Basquiat, and there was um, Stephen Sprouse and Richard Bernstein. I was kind of really influenced by a lot of what was going on in New York. Um, 
And that's kind of stayed with me. I mean, I think a lot of the club artworks that I was doing in the 90s and probably stuff that I do to this day is kind of almost like a visual remix of elements taken from a lot of that stuff, which is, I think, I think that's how artists operate. That's how Bowie operated as well, you know, taking in, taking in influences from various different sources and combining them together to put out something that has your own, that coalesces into your own kind of identity. So we take, I think it's taking elements of things to create an identity, a visual identity. I found a, a great quote from Paloma Picasso about Richard Bernstein. And um, it's written, uh, he celebrates their faces. He gives them larger than fiction size. He puts wit into the beauties, fantasy into the rich, depth into the glamorous, and adds instant patina which sort of makes things older and gives them more depth to newcomers. And it is something which I really felt, when I read that, I really felt, ah, that does describe a lot of your your work um, in, in many ways. Is that how you feel, what you actually put into your work as well? Um, I guess so. I mean, it's, it's difficult to think about your own work, really. Uh, as I said, it's, it's always interesting to hear people's take on it because... A lot of people have a, a different take on it, but listening to what you said uh, said just then, yeah, I guess, I guess no, I'm not deliberately setting out to do that, but I, I, I guess it's just the way it's happened. It translates uh, and it comes over as a lot of those elements that you just mentioned. I mean, clearly the mask has a fascination for you. You mentioned about you know Blitz and everyone essentially wearing a mask. Uh, for them to sort of uh, hide behind and be a different person. And of course, you know, one of the things that you're, you've become very famous for is the Bowie masks. When did you first sort of encounter the idea of a Bowie mask? First time, uh, well, actually, this is very interesting because um, the, the, the documentary by Alan Yentop, Cracked Actor, which was filmed on Bowie's 74 Diamond Dogs tour in America. Um, there's a scene in it where he has a face, um, he has a, a live cast taken of his face, and the program opens with him holding a plastic mask taken from this cast over his face, uh, which I saw at the time. I mean, I remember watching it on TV. It made a massive impression on me in, in January 75. Absolutely massive, um, because I adored that whole new mysterious kind of phase of Bowie. Uh, and it, that tied in with the whole idea of masks. Uh, and then, of course, as you say, discovering all the Blitz people um, and people in, in, in London who were creating these sort of masks in one way or another to function behind. It's always really fascinated me. And um, it was coincidental. I mean, it, again, like a lot of things that happened for me, it happened by accident because a friend of mine, uh, was an A&R person at EMI who got, he got hold of a cast which was taken from, it was a copy of a copy of a copy from the actual 74 cast that you see in Cracked Actor. And he let me use it to take a, a, my own mould from to start, um, you know, making them myself with no idea to sell them or, or do anything. I mean, I was just making them for my own enjoyment and as presents for people like Boy George, other 
Bowie fans and people that I knew. And then the V&A um, Museum, when they had the big David Bowie exhibition, they, they saw what I was doing and um, asked me if I would make an edition for for the V&A to, to actually sell. So, so I ended up making this edition of 300 David Bowie masks, which got a lot of uh, publicity and everything. And um, then I was contacted by Bowie's personal assistant from New York, uh, who asked me if I would make two for the Bowie archive. So um, it was another connection with, but there's been all these connections with, um, with David Bowie that kind of happened by accident over the years. I mean, he wrote me a handwritten letter from Berlin in 1979, um, thanking me for, because uh, when I first came to London, I'd, I'd done a, um, an artwork at art college of based on cracked actor images, like a collage of my artworks. And he was doing an interview, I think it was Capital Radio, and some Bowie fan girls that I was hanging out with said, oh, come along. So I went along and I met his PR lady, Barbara DeWitt, very charming American lady. And uh, I said, oh, I want, I'd like to give this to David Bowie. And she said, well, he's not going to come out because there's too much of a fuss going on. She said, but if you want to give it to him, I'll put it in the boot of his car and make sure he gets it. So I said, OK, great. And obviously I've attached a bit of a fan letter to it, you know, um, and I forgot about it. And then a couple of months later in June 79, I was at work in Soho in the design studio. And they said, oh, there's an airmail letter come for you. And I don't think I'd ever got a letter from anybody, you know, apart from Bill. And uh, it turns out it's from David Bowie in Berlin saying, thank you for, um, you know, your interest in me. Thank you for, uh, um, and thank you for the painting and recommending some books I should read. Very what, scary. what books did he recommend? Can you remember? Yeah, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by Julian James, James and Brain of the Firm by Stafford Beer. And he says on the letter, and I've got, I'll send you a picture of the letter if you want. It says, uh, it's a there, it's um, scary title, but don't be put off by that. And then the interesting thing is that was June 79, September 79. I was living with this guy who owns a nightclub called Legends in Mayfair, where Bowie used to frequent and hang out. And uh, one night he was in there and I was introduced to him. And I said, oh, by the way, you wrote me a letter. And he couldn't believe it. He said, wow, are you, are you the guy I wrote the letter to? And we had this chat about the letter. And I, I thought, I can't believe this. I'm in a nightclub that's owned by my friend. And talking to David Bowie, who's written me a letter, it was just an, another it, another um, example of just these things that just seem to happen without me planning them. And uh, it's been incredible. And it's just very strange. A lot of synchronicity in things. Um, they just make you wonder what is kind of going on. Are these? Is this some kind of way that these things are mapped out somehow. Uh, I don't know, strange. I'm interested in physics and all that, and um, a lot of that can kind of perhaps explain the way these things kind of occur, because sometimes you just have no explanation for how all of this sort of happens and how you find yourself, possibly like you, I don't know, on TV, suddenly you must have thought, I'm on TV. How did that happen? 
Yeah, but I thought it's meaningless. I'm not creating anything, not like you. I'm not creating art, which is what I feel like. At least I'm doing something like that today by writing. But I felt like it was a bit more of a vacuous sort of thing. What I love about your Bowie story was that his inspiration of you as a teenager in that letter later on is yeah. another form of deeper inspiration is saying to you, okay, I I understand what you were getting at and what you were doing, but here's something which can help you on your way, which is sort of a, which is a wonderful piece of giving, isn't it? It's absolutely incredible. I mean, I I still actually, I mean, I nearly fell over when I when I received the letter, and still to this day, I'm thinking, how did somebody of that stature at that time in their life take the time in Berlin to sit down? and write a letter to a fan uh, who they never met. It's just, I, I still can't get over it. I mean, you, you know, can you imagine an artist of that stature today doing that for anybody? I mean, he was just an incredible person. And I think he must have seen from what I, the, 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 art, the, the artwork I've done, he must have recognised because it was completely influenced by him. And I, I juxtaposed quotes from on the road by by uh, uh from, from yeah Kerouac um and images from Cracked Actor and, and he it must have just resonated with him and he must have just thought oh, I'll write to this person. Uh it's it still blows me away today that uh, that, that that actually happened. Um it's just amazing. How important was it with the masks to um study the makeup work of Pierre Laroche, who did the early Bowie makeup so that you would get all that stuff correct. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, it was very important because, I, I mean, painting as well, the way that I do is almost like, a lot of it is like putting makeup on a canvas. So already, um, already uh, you have some of those skills. And the other thing is, when I was involved in the in in the club world all those years, a lot of uh, a lot of um, a lot of people would ask me to do makeup for them. So, and a lot of a lot of uh, guys would ask me to do drag makeup on them for parties and things. So I was kind of uh, I was kind of used to doing makeup, and of course I did study the techniques of. I mean, Pierre Laroche was an incredible makeup artist and did the most amazing makeups for Bowie. And for the Rocky Horror uh, stuff and all of that, and fashion, um, and he did exactly the sort of faces that attract me—very kind of stark, bold faces. So um, it was very important for me to 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 get it right. Unfortunately, since I started doing that, a lot of people have kind of there's a lot of people now who are making Bowie masks who you can see that they haven't studied any makeup techniques and, and there's some really awful stuff out there. Uh, but um, I'm proud to say that, that the ones that I do are still considered to be, you know, the best. And they're the only ones that the Bowie archive and Bowie himself kind of obviously um, valued enough to have them in his own, uh, for his own archive. Um, but yeah, it was very important for me to study those techniques. Um, you mentioned Glitterbox earlier yeah. Um, yeah. and your artistic work with them. Now, artists have been involved um, 
with nightclubs in, you know, uh, since, well, I'm going to say since the 80s, I don't know, maybe it's even before, but, you know, I think of people like Keith Herring and yeah. and um, and these sort of people are involved in, in New York. Um, how important has that work been to you and how different or what other things do you have to take into account when you're working with something which is shown in that sort of atmosphere of a club? Mm. Um, well, the work is very important to me. I mean, all of my work stems from, as I said, going back to the Ziggy Stardust thing, which led on to the clubbing scene in London. Uh, and all of that has created my the subject matter that I work on, work in. Um, and uh, it's it, doing, it's kind of, as I said, it was, it, it, I saw what was happening in New York with the artists being involved. Uh, with the, it was was very um, the clubbing scene in in New York seemed to be a lot more artistic. There were a lot more artists involved than there seemed to be in London. So I wanted to bring clubs that I was involved in working for or doing stuff for. I wanted to bring in elements uh, of of what I saw was happening in New York. Um, by combining influences from a lot of those different artists. Uh, my kind of work translates across those sort of genres because it comes from there. And so it can be fed back in, out into a club environment or a gallery environment. Um, luckily it translates. So I don't have to radically change anything much that I do. Um, and clubs like Glitterbox obviously come to me because they've seen what I do and obviously realise that it fits in with uh, the sort of visual language that they want to put over. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just kind of do what I do. And, and some of the stuff, you know, I mean, I present ideas to people uh, like Glitterbox and some of them, they, they, they get rejected because it's not right particularly for what they want. So... Um, it's not like everything that I do fits in, but maybe out of every two or three ideas, there'll be one of them that is perfect for what they want. What I've realised is that people in most spheres don't know what they actually want, but they know what they don't want when they see what you show them. So... Uh, it, I actually like the idea of being given a, you know, I keep saying to people, give me a brief, give me an idea, but you don't really get that. They sort of let you do, the, the way it works is I basically do what I like and uh, luckily a lot of it they like and, they, and it ends up getting used. So I don't really change anything at all. Um, I don't think I would because I think you have to be, you have to have integrity that, what's going out there reflects you, uh, um, reflects how your your aesthetics and your visual sense. So I would never really change anything too much. I think it all pretty much, um, it all pretty much uh, works as a, as a kind of whole. Have you been to therapy? Not really. I had uh, I had some counselling for uh, for a while, um, which was quite interesting. And I was, but I it was, it was a very nice black lady, 
And I think she was quite shocked. I, could, I thought I only told her the tip of the iceberg. And after a couple of weeks, and, and they, what they were trying to do was they were trying to, because I was, they said, uh, you're, you're um, extremely emotionally detached because of all, whatever. And so what, what their goal was, they were, they were obviously trying to get me to be emotional and to cry. And stupidly, I thought, right, I'm not going to show them, I'm not going to do any of that. So it was like a fight, really. And I didn't get anywhere. It was a waste of time. I was thinking, I'm, you know, right, they're trying to get me to cry. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to show any emotion at all. And this poor woman had to take some time off. Uh, apparently had to go sick or something because she was just exasperated. David Lynch once said in an interview that uh, he was, he wanted to go to therapy and uh, the therapist had told him that if he come to therapy, he may not make the type of films that he makes because it might sort of repair the wounds of whatever he's making the films from in his childhood. And then he wouldn't actually be able to create those things. So he didn't go to therapy. So maybe... <laughs> I don't be able to go, um, heal um, David Lynch's wounds very easily. <laughs> For you, do you worry about where or how you're going to get your creativity from or if it could dry up? This might seem a ridiculous question but I feel as a writer sometimes I panic and go god what you know am I going to have another idea and then I have another idea so I just wondered how it works for you yeah um I think luckily I'm just still interested in everything I'm still fascinated by stuff and new stuff you know uh, I still um I think I think yeah it's just, I think as long as you're interested uh and uh, and still investigating new stuff. And I also, I think probably, I think with you, with probably you find this and most creatives, you're never satisfied really with what you've done. And you're always, you're always looking to do something better. So there's still, I think there's still, you're still always striving to, 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 to actually, I mean, I'm, I'm never happy with any of my, paintings or because you always think I wish I'd done this or you know when you've got limitless possibilities uh, like if you're writing and you've got a blank screen in front of you and basically there's endless possibilities of what you could do or if you've got a blank canvas in front of you and you know there's endless amounts of colors or tones of colors or whatever you can do um when one you once you've done something I think you're always going to think I could have done it differently or 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 I'm not happy with that and you all you you kind of so I don't think you're ever really happy with what you've done completely sometimes you're happier than you are uh, other times so I think it's always you, you want to go on and do you want to get it right next time you know and then of course you look back on stuff you've done in the past and you think well that, that looks great but at the time you weren't happy with it at all, you know. It's it's strange. It, it's this lack of satisfaction and always being interested. Uh, and somehow it just works out that you, uh, you know, you do, I go through periods where I sort of have to kind of wing it, you know, and just think, oh well, I'll just riff on some on some idea that I've had before or something. But generally speaking, I always manage to get excited by something new or or, or or new facet of something that I've done before. So yeah, I think you just gotta you just gotta keep interested in 
in in you know I'm still really interested in fashion. I'm still really interested in music and. Um, I mean, I don't really go to clubs anymore. <laughs> Having been going to clubs since 1975 and spending a lot of the 90s running uh, at clubs like Trade and whatever, you know, I, I, people are always inviting me to clubs. And uh, I'm, uh, and they say, oh, cut, you know, it starts earlier. It starts at 10 and I'm like, oh, no, it's too late for me now, you know. I said, but you used to run a club that didn't open till 2 in the morning. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, that was... 26 years ago or whatever it was, you know, so, but I'm still interested in all of, all. I'm still interested in it all. Do you still need confirmation from other people that you needed as a younger person, like I mentioned that I look for? Oh, totally, yeah. I think all artists are completely insecure about that sort of thing. And I think it's like a drug. You're never going to be satisfied, you know. Uh, I don't think you're ever satisfied um, with 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 validation you know it's never quite enough is it i guess yet i don't know i guess we'll find out at the end i just want to say because i think it's really important this wound in the childhood and how it affects you and how at the time it does seem like an, an immense wound that you really want to repair and you really want to do something about and you find out later in life it gives you so much it gives you the drive the ambition it pushes you to do, to create, to do what you want to do in life. So in a sense, I I think that what happened in your life as a young man has given you and all of us um, the chance to witness uh, the work of someone who makes some of the great popular culture art um, today. So Mark Wardell, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, my pleasure. USAA Insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.